dear friends, I hope you will allow me to, uh, sorry to cut through a very pleasant lunch. I can hear from the tone of discussions, it's very interesting and very pleasant, so sorry to interrupt. But we have come to the moment now of having our keynote speaker with us. And before introducing him, uh, I would like to take a minute to thank you all for making this event uh, another great success. Uh, it's the 18th year we're holding this event, and it's an event that is very dear to us. I'm particularly proud of two things. Number one, if you let me share with you, on May 10, we were in Shanghai, where we hosted uh, a tremendous maritime conference. On May 14, we were in Tokyo, where we hosted another tremendous maritime conference. And on May 22, we're in New York, hosting a wonderful close and fun NETF event. So I would like to say a tremendous thanks to my staff. I'm only the team leader. So I'd like to thank my staff. I'd like to thank in particular Eleni Bay, who uh, coordinates our conference worldwide. And you all know Annie Zhu. I'd like to thank Annie for working with me uh, on this conference and on business development. And now we have a new Annie on our team who, uh, who joined us and she will be working with you as well on closing funds and, and ETFs. So the second reason I'm very proud is because this event, 18 years, I think we are the only private sector initiative that has withstood the test of time. And despite the ups and downs of the sector, we have been here every year delivering quality events. But why do we do that? Not only because we have good and dedicated staff, but because we have good friends in the industry who value our work and who support it year after year. So a tremendous thanks from us to you, to the sponsors, to the speakers, to the panelists for your continued support. I must have said something wrong. So a tremendous thanks to all of you for your loyalty, your support. Uh, which allows us every year to continue doing this, uh, this work. Uh, I would like to acknowledge the partnership of the New York Stock Exchange. We have with them a very long-standing relationship. I'm particularly happy to acknowledge this year the support and involvement of the Closed End Fund Association of CIFA. Uh, I think uh, the motto is there's strength in unity, and I'm delighted that uh, we are working together, and I hope our cooperation will flourish and develop uh, more. Uh, so again, thanks to the sponsors, thank you to everybody, and now let me uh, introduce to you our keynote speaker, Jan Van Eck. I don't really think that Jan needs uh, an introduction, but still I will focus on a few key uh, elements of his career. Uh, Jan is uh, joined uh, Van Eck uh, Corporation in 1982, and uh, is uh, the president, chief executive officer, and an owner of Van Eck Corporation, and of course he's serving uh, as uh, a senior manager, president, or chief executive officer on many of the funds of uh, this organization. Uh, one of the uh, main, and, and Jan has many main uh, accomplishments, but one of them is the fact that in 2006, he established uh, the ETF uh, segment of Van Eck Corporation, 
and under his uh, management and vision, uh, the ETF side has, uh, has now uh, come to the point of managing, if I'm not mistaken, about 34 billion, and it's still growing. Uh, so, also Jan, uh, as you can see, is always a thought leader. He's always at the forefront of development in the industry. And uh, we are delighted that today he's going to speak uh, uh, to us. I'm not going to reveal about what, because he told me before. I think it's very interesting. But I will only say that uh, Jan, among his many positions, he's also uh, a director of the National Committee on United States-China Relations. I think that's a particularly interesting and timely position to have right now. Uh, and of course, as you know, he has routinely appeared on CNBC, on Bloomberg, and he was a 2013 finalist for Institutional Investors Fund Leader of the Year. So ladies and gentlemen, let me invite Jan Van Eck to the podium and thank him for being with us today as our keynote speaker. And again, thank you to all of you. Uh, thank you, Nicholas. That's a very extremely generous uh, 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 background. Uh, thank you for including me, and thanks to all of you for your uh, attention. It's great to see some friends in the room, uh, uh, almost at every table. If uh, hopefully you won't leave in the middle of the talk. So, my thought is just to maybe talk for about 20 minutes or so, and it open it up uh, to questions and answers if you have any. Uh, my general topics, I do want to talk about China a little bit and, and crypto and Bitcoin. Uh, Nicholas was kind enough to allow me to title the talk very open-ended because I'm not sure what I wanted to say a month ago. And every Bitcoin gets a lot of clicks, so I said, well, we've got to talk about crypto a little bit. So uh, I will try to give you some predictions about the future. That's how I'm approaching my talk today. What are the things that are likely to happen in the next five years and what should we as investors do about it? Um, obviously, making predictions about the future is stupid in a way, um, but I'll tell you, I do feel strongly not about my predictions, but about and some things uh, and how to think about some of the events that are almost for sure going to happen in the next five years. So um, first uh, set of things I wanted to talk about is China. China, its impact on growth, what's happening on the technology front, and its impact on the portfolio. My background in China is I um, uh, started traveling there in 1992. We did a joint venture from 94 to 98, which we uh, sold at a profit. We restarted an office there um, and just got a wholly owned subsidiary license, one of 30 foreign money managers to be able to do that. And um, I've been there over 50 times. It's sort of a hobby interest of mine. What I say from an investment perspective is you can't come to the office your first business day in January without having a view of what China's economy is going to do. And that's the reason I want to talk about it, because it, as the second largest economy in the world, its economic cycle affects ev almost every asset class, certainly emerging market equities, certainly commodities, but I think because of commodities indirectly high yield, like in 2015, when energy bonds were cratering, it, why? It was, it was demand concerns about China that drove oil to $25 a barrel. So I actually, um, I'm going to overpromise, and I'm going to give you a deliverable because my question is always, how do we know how China is doing? As some of you guys know, I'm a big hockey fan. So like, how the, are the Islanders winning? Are they losing? It's easy. You put it in your Google. 
And I find it really frustrating because there are a lot of statistics. You read a lot of pundits saying China's going to implode. Their property market is, you know, collapsing. There's too much inventory. You know, the renminbi is about to, you know, be, be incinerated. So what's happening? So I'm going to offer you a proposed solution. And I'm actually going to ask you to do something that probably no speaker has ever done, which is bring out your smartphones. And I'm serious. Open it up to a browser because it's going to have two charts, which I believe answer this question, and I'm going to talk about those charts. So if you put in there, uh, Jan Van Eck, J-A-N Van Eck, E-C-K, how is China doing? We just posted this blog yesterday. And uh, so Jan Van Eck, has anyone found this page? You have to click through like all these cookies things. Has anyone found it? Jan Van Eck, how is China doing? No? Arms are winning. All right. Oh, they got swept. Has anyone found it yet? So, how, oh, sorry. How is China doing? And then don't click on the video one. Click on the blog one. This could be a complete failure, but that's okay. I'm going to keep talking. Did anyone find it? Okay. So there's only two charts, and my sales pitches, these are the only two charts you will ever need to know what's going on in China. Okay, the first chart, whether you have it or not, is uh, purchasing manager index, PMI, and there's two charts. One is manufacturing, and the second is non-manufacturing, let's call it services. So the manufacturing PMI hovers around the 50 mark, and 50 is expansionary. So above 50 is expansionary, below 50 is contractionary. And this is where I think is the statistic to look at whether China is in trouble or not. Because their GDP is always 6%, right? That's not helpful to you, and it's not helpful to anyone understanding what's going on in the cycles in China. But manufacturing PMI is. So you see at the end of 2015, it turned negative, right? That is when old China was collapsing, right? Steel, you know, capital was going less to the steel and aluminum factories and all that kind of stuff. And that's when new China was emerging, you know, that theme, right? And new China is the top line. So you see new China has been expansionary for years in the, in the 50s numbers, way, way above 50. So if you only looked at that number, you'd say, China's doing great. Why are they freaking out, right? It's the manufacturing PMI, which turned negative in the second half of last year, which is what was concerning. Okay, the other PMI that was collapsing last year, which country's PMI was absolutely collapsing like a cliff dive? Germany. So, so I think that, that economic collapse, um, that's what hit the markets, I think, and that's what the equity market started pricing in in the fourth quarter, and that's why I think this is an important statistic to look at. So what happened in, in the beginning of last summer of uh, 2018 is the Chinese government realized we, we, I'm, we're seeing a slowdown, right? They have their fingers on the pulse of the economy. So that they saw that PMI going down, and that's when they started what we call drip stimulus measures. So it wasn't throwing trillions of dollars at the economy like they did during the financial crisis, but they started uh, fiscal tax cuts. They started some monetary loosening. Uh, reserve requirement cuts, they, I don't know, the number was something like 70 different stimulus cuts that they did. And what you see, if you can actually find this blog or find the statistics somewhere else, is that PMI started turning up 
about a month ago, which is entirely predictable, right? The whole world, our world is very simple. It all comes down to only one thing, what's the central bank doing? And since the PBOC was stimulating in the second half of last year, you knew their economy was going to turn around. Now, maybe sugar medicine and may have problems with that, but that's kind of the backdrop to what is going on in China as it cycles through going forward. So that's my sales slide number one on what's going on in China. The, the next slide below it, if you're still on the page, is the other part of the story, which was why was their economy slowing down so much in the second half of last year, it's all about the central bank. So what you see in that second slide is that China has two credit systems effectively. One is for state-owned enterprises because that's a huge part of their economy. And you'll see that interest rates didn't move at all. Yes, Xi Jinping's friends always get money and the price of that money is always cheap. But the cr uh, cost of credit to private enterprises, you'll see was going up steeply last year. And that's what people were concerned about. So that credit cutoff is what hurt private enterprise last year and caused their economy, their manufacturing PMIs to sink. So that's the narrative. And so when you saw those, that interest rate spike level off, it hasn't come down yet, but you saw it level off, basically the China recovery cycle was likely to be okay. And guess what? It got reflected in the equity market. So Q1, right, the economy, the credit is coming back, central bank is stimulative, sure enough, with a three to six month lag, boom, it kicks into their financial markets. So I don't know, that's my sales pitch. If you wanna know what's going on in China, amongst all the statistics, I think those are the kind of the best statistics to, uh, to kind of look for. So um, quickly finishing up on China, looking ahead. So if they're stimulating and you can't, you always follow the central bank, the rest of this year should be okay in terms of emerging market equity markets. Because if the US is growing and China growing, we've got financial markets should be okay. So that's my, my little market prediction there. Uh, again, over the next five years, what's one thing that we absolutely know? And here's my question to you, is it 20 or is it five? So. How big is China going to be in your global equity portfolios in the next five years? If you use market cap weighting or use GDP statistics, it should be 20%. If you actually use those weightings in an emerging market index, it would blow up emerging markets as an asset class because China would be half of it. So my question to you and your investment committee meetings on the first day of January next year and every year for the rest of your careers is how big is China going to be? And the great thing about our industry is we have no answer. That's what I love about our industry. It's just, you know, so, uh, you know, one index firm decides to arbitrarily start changing that number. You can follow that. Um, but I think it's just a really important question that we've been asking ourselves. I think we're probably at t 10. Um, I think we would handicap China because we're concerned about the transparent, we're stock pickers at, in, in one part of our company, concerned about the transparency of their companies. There's obviously political risk. Um, and there's, you know, there's just a very intervention of government policy, so we would probably be a little bit less than that. And that's sort of how Russia has been treated in EM portfolios as well. So anyway, that's, but I think that's a big question to think about because if you just follow the course of events, China would 
blow up your emerging market equities asset class allocation. And, and I think it has to be considered separately anyway. Okay, quickly on crypto, um, and then I'll open it up to questions. So I'm gonna predict the price of Bitcoin in a second. But before I get there, no, no slides needed, I guess I would just make one point, uh, which is, uh, I've called this the year of singles for, for crypto assets. The world, I hate the word crypto, but it's the only word to use, and I feel like a fool when I use it. But anyway, the crypto ecosystem is alive and thriving despite the big bear market of, of last year. And let me just give you a couple of reference points for that. The core surviving part of the crypto ecosystem are the crypto exchanges. And Bitfinex, which is one I follow a lot, sort of, sort of headquartered in Hong Kong, made $400 million US last year. Of publicly listed companies in the US, that single crypto exchange would rank in the top 650. So it's, it's a real enterprise, and their revenue is like 400, and their expenses are like 16 million for programmers. That's crazy, nice business to think about. Clients, right? We know Coinbase, if you follow Coinbase based in, in, in California, had accumulated almost as many clients as Schwab in the course of three years. Now, probably a lot of them are very disappointed millennials, but it's still a big, sizable number, and I'd be happy to have 15 million clients at Vanek. Absolutely. Uh, I think all of us would. And then the, there are technology developments that are bringing it into our lives, whether we like it or not, the traditional world, and whether the FTC likes it or not. So first of all, on the payments front, a company called Square, a big payments company, has enabled Bitcoin transactions on their cash app, and there was over 150 million Bitcoin-oriented transactions, I guess, last quarter, or last quarter of last year, in Bitcoin. So people are using it on Square. Uh, Gemini just announced, they had this big conference last week, Gemini just announced that uh, they've done a JV that allows you to pay for your Starbucks coffee with Bitcoin. And uh, a bunch of other major brand name retailers. And what's the benefit to them? They don't have to change their computer system, so Howard Schultz ain't changing the Starbucks system. But they save, you know, merchandisers have to pay 2.5% back to Visa. Guess what, with Bitcoin they don't have to do that. So I don't know what the take-up will be, obviously, but you, out of your wallet today, can use Bitcoin in, in these kinds of venues. Uh, stable coins, just to talk on some other developments that I think are important to note since I'm giving the talk on this. Stable coins are meant to track the, uh, the US dollar, basically, and the, the volume in stable coins is tremendous. Uh, the biggest stable coin is about two billion. I'm not gonna kind of go into it now, but if you're not familiar with that phenomenon, I suggest that that's gonna be important going forward over the next five years. And the last thing, and this is entirely speculative, is what they call tokenization. So our ETFs trade on the New York Stock Exchange, great sponsor, um, worth the competition. Um, will there be ETF tokens that trade on the Bitfinex Stock Exchange? I don't know. Um, I think, as I said, it's speculative and I'm not, I'm not predicting it, but that's something that a lot of people are thinking about and working on because their ecosystem is so much more efficient than the old you know, mainframe-based ecosystem of C plus two security settlement that we're all used to dealing with. It's instantaneous um, and that's, that's one of the appeals. Okay. So uh, my last comment is what's the price of, gonna happen to the price of Bitcoin? 
So I will say my credibility on this is only that um, I did say with a colleague in December of 2017 that the downside on Bitcoin was 80 to 90%, and I guess we were right. And it's very simple. I've looked at this asset. It's a 10-year-old asset, and the previous corrections have been 80 or 90%. Uh, Bitcoin, after doing that, has never not hit an all-time high. So my prediction is Bitcoin will hit an all-time high in the next five years. The benchmark that you probably don't know about, um, and maybe you can time a conference around it, Tomorrow's the 23rd of May. On the 23rd of May in 2020, Bitcoin mining will have. So there will be half the amount of supply of new Bitcoins coming to the market. You know, and that scarcity value, we'll see what happens. It's a speculative technology to a certain extent. Uh, but that could be something that people start focusing on. Um, and I'm not going to say there's a fundamental value to Bitcoin. Uh, the last thing I just note is sort of why as we, are we as a firm involved in it, and it's because two years ago we decided that, listen, we've been involved in gold since the 1960s. For a certain type of generation, eventually Bitcoin could evolve into being a store of value competitive with gold. I'll put it alternatively, if we get into a big war or trade fight or inflationary uh, cycle, what's going to benefit more, Bitcoin or gold? I'd rather earn a little bit of both. So that's it. Uh, thank you for your, um, for your interest, um, and I'd love to answer any questions. Right, H hacking is definitely the biggest negative. If you look at the two negatives over the last year, for sure, the constant hacks. Uh, we'll see what, you know, the Binance was just about, I wanna say $40 million in magnitude, so it's, it's a lot. Um, now, remember the first point I made is these exchanges are so rich that they actually have so much money that they reimburse those hacks. So you probably don't read about that, and I'm not saying that gives you a comfort level. Um, there's just a lot of risk around the hot wallet treatment. And, and ultimately, it's, it's like it's a bearer asset. It's like gold, right? And if you don't have a lot of controls over those keys, or if you have in, in, internal theft or malware, then, then that's the operational risk. And probably one of the concerns for a Bitcoin ETF is the what they call the custody issue, broadly understood. So, uh, yeah, it's a negative, but, I, but the space is moving, you know, it's, it hasn't killed the overall trend. Yeah. Sure. I mean, look, there's no paper currency that's lasted as long as gold, right? So if, now why does the crowd, then the issue is, well, why does the crowd value gold? I, I really have no idea, right? It's, but it's, it's almost like modern art. It's like Warren Buffett will say, like a lot of investors will say, listen, it doesn't generate income, so why do I care about it? I'd rather own companies or I'd rather own fixed income. And, and I can't really fight against that. I just would say that 
Bitcoin is a hedge against governments because eventually your dollar is going to be worthless. Now, it may not be in your lifetime, um, but every empire, the longest empire that, that, and it used gold back, it was the Ottoman Empire, and it lasted, I think, for whatever, six, eight hundred years. But sooner or later, paper currency devalues. And why? Because they can't stop spending. Kings, rulers can't stop spending. So it depends, I would say, a little bit on what your time horizon is and your personal uh, need for a hedge. If you don't have a need for a hedge and you don't have a long time horizon, yeah, I kind of agree. So I try to phrase it that way. I don't know, does that? <laughs> yeah. Right, so I think growth is independent, uh, pretty independent of the tariff wars, right? So I think it's the central banks win and each country is big enough to kind of manage its own cycles. I do think that where the countries are in the cycles has affected their mentality a little bit. And so that China is recovering now, I think they're like, eh, well, push back against the US a little bit. Um, I would say, secondly, that um, we don't like each other. And we don't like the fact that China has not played by the rules. 80% of global counterfeiting comes out of China. The IP theft is high. And I think the cyber, I think reading between lines, I don't know this for a fact, but the cybersecurity hacking, I think, has started again or continued out of China in a way that we won't, we wouldn't know or, the, you know, uh, the administration's not telling us. So I would say trade war itself, I, I, I think it's an opportunity to buy because I can't see tariffs going from 25 to 50 percent. I mean, I think it's one thing to nick your economy. It's another thing to run it over with a truck the year before you get, you're up for election. So I think that's kind of that's kind of priced in. I think what is not well understood in the U.S. is the technology decoupling and this Huawei issue is huge. Um, and 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 you know I, I will describe it that let's assume we none of us knows that Huawei is actually controlled by the Chinese military and that they were trying to make a grab for not just breaking into systems, but like being able to break into all our security and communication systems at will. I'm not sure how they would use that, but the administration has said that's not happening. So that means that there might be quid pro quo sort of fights over Apple phone sales in China or Qualcomm licensing in China, because we just, we, we just, just said, and the West has said, it's not just we, and it's bipartisan, enough is enough. And so I call that decoupling, and I think that's absolutely going to happen um, uh, from the military. You know, it won't implode their economy, won't implode their stock market. There'll be plenty of great companies there, uh, but it's but I think it's a it's a political reality. So that's interwoven, I think, with this trade war talk. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, I guess, you know, I, I, I talked about the charts before I finally said, wow, I've got two charts that I think everyone should look at. Um, I, I was asking a bunch of experts, what is Chinese growth? <laughs> it's amazing, like no one, not, there are not many, Brookings actually has a really good study on this, but there are not many people that can answer that question or have looked at it really thoroughly because there's so many bad statistics out there. 
So this is a little bit speculative, but the way I look at the Chinese economy, it's probably only growing two to four percent a year. And I think that their um, favoring of SOEs is hurting them by like one to two percent a year. And I say that, I'll just give you an example. So we hired at the head of our office in China, someone who had built a great asset management business in Hong Kong, and he, he did it for a, big, for a big bank, so he had the benefit of that, but he still had to do it with very few resources. And then they told, he lost his job. And do you know why? Why did he lose his job? But why? Sort of. He's not a party member. He's not a Communist Party member. That's not a great way to run your economy. That is a huge chunk of their economy. So I think they're hurting themselves, um, you know, that way going forward. So um, I know that's kind of how I frame the thinking about about that. Does that make sense? Oh, sorry. Yeah, demographics as well. Sure. Their labor force has maximized, right? It's peaked. It was a year or two ago. And uh, that absolutely will be a drag. There's offsetting things because they have a high savings rate and there's lots of different things going on there. I think the additional point I would make is that, like I said with the example for our company, intellectual capital doesn't want to hang. That's really important in the economy these days. And uh, I, I think people, Chinese people will want a foot out of China, right? The entrepreneurial ones will want a footprint in Hong Kong, Taiwan, or the US. So I think that'll hurt them, but I don't think, I don't think the government people care at all. So, and I'm not sure it'll hurt the region. That's a little bit of a, of a harder thing to say. Um, yeah. Sure, um, just to different share structures, I guess, of Chinese companies. And, and uh, I mean, they, th the reason they're going to be in your portfolios is because their capital co controls are reducing. So the Stop, Stock Connect program has opened up their equity markets and continues to, and their fixed income markets are totally open. So those share arbitrages have narrowed over time. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah. The other point, actually, thank you for reminding me, really important point about China being in your portfolios. China, five years ago in your portfolio, was Hong Kong stocks. And Hong Kong, because they're linked pegged to the dollar, they would behave almost like US stocks because they're tied to the same monetary cycle. Over the last year, statistically, they've started trading much more with China, which makes sense, with Chinese A-share equities. So the China in your portfolio, I guess this is a positive spin, going forward over the next five years will be much more part of the renminbi world uh, than it will be out of the Hong Kong US. At least that's the way it's behaving now, and I, I would expect that trend to continue. Can we get one more? Or? Yeah, OK. Next, next speaker, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. But I will say, you know, we've been asking clients about like how do you size China and one of my colleagues met with someone that said, forget emerging markets, I'm sizing India here and China here. Meaning they were making that, you know, sort of structural multi-year bet and I think it's a great way to think about it, I just don't, I don't know. That's, too, that's a whole five hour discussion I think probably.
uh, it's a question about the U.S. economy and a lot of structural headwinds, including government deficits and things like that. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I can't really address all those, you know, kind of longer-term issues. The economy seems to be growing uh, right now, and I don't see any bubbles. I guess I always look for the outliers. I don't see any, any bubbles right now. Um, and I would say the Fed is accommodative. And I just say for all of us, like it's all about the central bank. Everything you mentioned is okay and interesting, but it's all about the Fed. If the, and the Fed, you know, better, way better than Europe, has the ammunition to go back to cut rates and to another QE cycle. I mean, I know that's a little bit short term, next five, 10 years oriented, but they, we at least live in a country that has a you know, central bank that has some bullets. What's the ECB going to do? Take rates from negative one to negative five percent? I mean, what's their financial sector going to look like? I, so I, I guess it's the you know the cleanest shirt in the laundry, right? So, all right. Well, thank you very much. Jan, thank you for a very insightful and above all very lively delivery. I really tremendous. Thank you so much, and uh, dear friends. Thanks for, the, uh, for being with us today. Thanks for the lunch. Let's go down. We have the afternoon sessions. They're equally interesting. And I promise we have reserved a seat for you. So please come back down. Thank you. Thank you.